how this whole thing just cheapens the entire political process. Yeah. And no matter what side of the aisle you're on, this is what you see of your government. And you're like, never mind. I don't want anything to do with those crazy people. Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content following this week's edition of In Focus. Exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Spieler. Good morning. Another flurry of developments in Washington with the government still under a partial shutdown amidst a pretty ugly back and forth between the president and the House Speaker. The State of the Union address may not even happen as scheduled. And now there's that new report from BuzzFeed signaling more potential trouble for the president, alleging President Trump directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. We'll have more on all of this coming up later this morning. But first reaction to the governor's state of the state address as Governor Eric Holcomb calls for lawmakers to dip into the surplus to find money for Indiana school districts that he wants to go directly to teacher pay. It's been a big issue already this year at the State House. Our Trevor Shirley has more. The governor wants to use state surplus money to pay off a pension liability that Indiana schools are currently paying. He says the move would save Indiana schools more than $100 million over the next two years, but there's still no guarantee that any of that saved money would actually end up in teachers' pockets. Governor Eric Holcomb caught many off guard when he announced plans to pull $150 million from the state's $2 billion surplus to pay off a pension liability that Indiana schools are currently footing. Just like paying off your mortgage frees up money in your personal budget, this state investment will save all local schools $140 million over the biennium with continued savings thereafter. The idea is already getting approval from many Republicans. I think anytime you can make a one-time investment that has a long-term multiplier payout in it, I think that's a good thing. Even some Democrats who have long called for a boost in teacher pay say they're cautiously optimistic. The mechanism is actually something that I've been calling for for a while, so I think it's a great idea. But the question is whether teachers will actually see the savings. I believe local school districts should allocate 100% of the $140 million to increasing teacher paychecks. The key word there is believe. There's still no line item mandate that any savings have to be passed on to teachers. And even some Republicans worry about telling local schools how to spend their money. We need to be really careful about invading the province of the elected school boards. And even some Democrats who support the idea say the bump in pay teachers would get isn't nearly enough. Their actual proposal does not quite drive enough money to the to the teacher raises as our Senate Democrats proposal would have done. And again, this is still just a proposal. It still has to be voted on by the General Assembly by the time the legislative session ends later this year. Reporting in the newsroom, I'm Trevor Shirley. Now back to you. All right, Trevor, thanks. More reaction now to the governor's state of the state address. This week, I spoke on the record with Senate Minority Leader Tim Lannan. What were your thoughts on the governor's address, especially on this issue of teacher pay? Well, yeah, on teacher pay, uh, of course, he caught my attention when he basically came out with a way by which he thinks we can come up with uh, revenues this year to uh, implement in this budget cycle an increase in teacher pay for the state of Indiana, which is very important because teachers in Indiana get paid less on average than teachers in all the surrounding states, uh, they basically are 
working with a decrease in their pay uh, since 2000. So everyone recognizes we need to do something, and we need to do something now if we can. And there have been sort of this discussion going around about, well, maybe we need to study it some more. Oh, well, maybe we need to say back to the local units or the local school districts, you've got to come up with the money yourself. So the governor's idea on taking a part of the surplus and using it now for teacher pay, um, there's very many details there we'll have to take a look at to make sure we that it is a sound idea. But what I liked about what he was saying there was the idea that if we look hard enough, we are going to be able to find the revenue and the means by which to implement a teacher pay increase in this budget cycle. So I, th I find it intriguing. I take a lot of study. Uh, there's always devil in the details here, but generally I welcome the suggestion that we can find the money in this budget cycle to increase teacher pay. But there's no guarantee that local school districts would have to use that money for teacher pay, right? Legally, there's no way to no, mandate right. that money goes to and teachers. That, that's right, and that's a an issue we're going to have to work with as we proceed along with the idea because I'm not interested necessarily in just taking that money and making it available for any use, although I do understand that you know, uh, school budgets throughout the uh, public school uh, budgets throughout the state are tight. But I am interested in finding a way to address the issue of uh, increasing teacher pay. So that, those are details we'll have to take a look at and see how we can maybe not exactly mandate that, but at least incentivize local school districts to utilize this money for that purpose. The governor calling for a hate crime bill. This was the reaction from Republicans Tuesday night. Some standing and applauding the governor on that proposal. Others did not stand and applaud. What kind of bill will we ultimately see on this issue? And will it have enough votes to pass? Well, uh, there again, I was taken by the governor's suggestion that basically uh, we uh, follow the Suggestions with which uh, which Senate Democrats and House Democrats have advocated for several uh, years now. In fact, we've had hate crime legislation going back decades. But our proposals, as of late, have always focused on the idea that you do list specifically the uh, classes uh, in the legislation, so there's not confusion over what we're talking about. That includes specifically listing protection and hate crimes for crimes committed against people based upon sexual orientation or gender identity. He pointed to his own administration's policies, hiring practices and policies, which says specifically that there will not be discrimination against those groups. So I thought it showed uh, a pathway, uh, just like teacher pay, this is something the governor's going to have to continue to lead on. It's the Republican caucuses that seem to have problems with these ideas. So as the Republican governor of the state, he is the governor of everyone in the state, and he recognizes that when he says he wants protection for all people, including uh, based upon sexual orientation and gender identity. He's going to have to show the leadership to get the other side of the aisle, uh, the Republican supermajorities, to go along with those ideas, but I think he's on the right track there. You gained a seat in the Senate in November, but obviously Republicans still hold the supermajority. Realistically, what can you hope to accomplish 
here in the coming year? Well, we, uh, again, I'm encouraged because here we have the governor saying he thinks teacher pay should be going down the avenue that Democrats have suggested. He's saying that hate crimes should be passed in Indiana, something we've been saying for a long time, and should be modeled upon the ideas of uh, the Democrats in the General Assembly, even though we are in the minority. So we are going to be champions of both of those ideas. I always tell my caucus members, we may not on its face have the votes, but we have the voices. We've got to be heard loud and clear. We have to make sure that, by and large, we are unified on these issues, and I think we are. So I think there's a lot that we can do. Uh, people are listening to our ideas. That's why we did pick up some seats here this last uh, go around, and it turned out to be a fairly difficult, uh, you know, voting environment. But still, uh, we have to continue to advocate loud and clear on those things that we believe in, and put those issues out there for people to uh, judge themselves upon when it comes election time. But we can't hesitate to lead on those matters. Uh, during the legislative sessions, and that's exactly what we'll do. All right, State Senator Tim Lannon, thank you so much for talking with us. uh, Amidst all this winter weather, we're both a little under the weather. Thank you for taking some time to talk with us today. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. All right, more with our panel coming up. Also ahead, we'll hear from Republican Indiana Congresswoman Susan Brooks about her visit to the White House and the latest efforts to try and end this stalemate in Washington. Plus, No State of the Union address? Indiana lawmakers weighing in on this pretty ugly back and forth between President Trump and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Next. Well, I find it ironic. I just learned that Speaker Pelosi is asking to delay State of the Union because of security. That is what this essential argument is about. I had high hopes, quite frankly, that maybe some members would come to the table and have the president and some uh, members of his negotiating team really try to begin some discussions with members of the Democrat caucus. Um, They chose not to come yesterday. A number of Republicans, we did go because it's very important that we continue this dialogue and we have more discussions. Congresswoman Susan Brooks this week talking with CNN about the government shutdown and her trip to the White House. Let's talk about it now with our panel. Indy Star columnist Tim Swearens, former communications director for the Indiana Democrats, Jennifer Wagner, former GOP lawmaker Mike Murphy, and political science professor Dr. Laura Wilson. Great to have you all here today. You heard Congresswoman Brooks there talking about the shutdown. Things are getting even uglier uh, amidst some other potentially troubling legal developments for the president that we discussed earlier. Another wild week in Washington. It seems like we say that every week, but this is an incredibly wild week. All sorts of things going on. A letter about the State of the Union, a a a congressional trip canceled at the last minute, and then this uh, bombshell from BuzzFeed that could be mean serious threat to the presidency. What are the long-lasting implications here in the coming weeks and months? So when it comes to the shutdown, I don't see an end in sight. I don't think, I think right now this is Susan Brooks versus, you know, Nancy Pelosi versus Donald Trump. I don't think, even though these poor federal workers have been going for a month without a paycheck, that real folks out here in the in the heartland have felt that pain yet. So I don't know if it's longer TSA lines or if we get into tax season and people don't get their tax returns, but I don't think we're at a tipping point yet. Is this a potentially troubling legal development, significant development, if, if the information well, in this well, report sure Friday is, is true? But we have one news source, all right, news, news, uh, BuzzFeed, which is being quoted by every other media source, 
We don't know if it's true. They haven't revealed their sources or their evidence. And so I'd like to just have everybody calm down and wait for the Mueller report, which is going to come probably the next few months. Um, but we've got to separate all that out from the shutdown, which is very different. And I think you'll see Trump continue to, to trump up, so to speak, the border issue to conceal or to divert from his legal problems. And it's hard to separate it all out when all the dynamics are moving the way they are. It is. You'd like to think like the government shutdown isn't political, but it was caused by a, a policy <laughs> issue in the first place. Very so political. Yeah, it's, it's hard to make that distinction. And I think uh, government workers are being treated as pawns. These big personalities are trying to negotiate to get what they want. Um, I don't think most people are feeling it, and so that's why there's not enough political pressure. But I'd also agree with Tim's point. I don't see an end in sight. I don't think there's an re- easy compromise. We're not just going to build the wall half as high or part of the way, if one group thinks it's immoral, the other group thinks it's imperative, they're going to be in conflict for a long time, unfortunately. Hard to find that middle ground. And again, a week from Tuesday, we're supposed to hear from the president for the State of the Union address. It might not happen. Let's talk about that right now. Indiana Congressman Jim Banks tweeting this week, Speaker Pelosi wants to cancel the State of the Union because she knows her obstruction, in his words, is indefensible to the American public. Instead of giving the president a national audience, she'd rather spoil an American tradition. Banks says, quote, it's time to grow up, do your job, and negotiate. Then, perhaps in response to that move by Speaker Pelosi on the State of the Union, the President informed the Speaker he was canceling the military aircraft that was supposed to take her and other lawmakers to visit U.S. soldiers overseas, a trip that had been previously unannounced for security purposes. Indiana Congressman Andre Carson issuing a statement afterwards saying President Trump's petty cancellation of today's military flight, which will deprive the Speaker and the House of critical security info, does nothing but weaken our national security. Carson says, furthermore, his unprecedented disclosure of information about her undisclosed trip to a war zone is irresponsible and endangers the lives of everyone on her trip and the troops supporting her in theater. He says these actions are counterproductive and unpresidential, in his words. Tim, your thoughts on on, on this back and forth this week? It's a mess, uh, and I would fault both the president and and the House Speaker for how they acted uh, this week. and it's, it's gotten to the personal and petty stage, which is the last thing we need from our top leaders. And so what do Indiana lawmakers do in response? Pretty much both sides going to their camps here? They, they have. I mean, look at those tweets. Look at those statements. That's what they're doing. I mean, my kids behave better than this. And that is a bipartisan statement. These people are at each other with words, 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 and no action. You think we'll see a State of the Union speech? I think we will, but I don't blame Pelosi for using her position. I mean, ultimately, she decides if that speech takes place. It's in the House chamber. It's in the House chamber. So I don't don't blame her for uh, trying to use her leverage. Trump is using his leverage. In the meantime, as you mentioned, the House and senators all go to their talking points and their media aides' advice. And it's, it's like kids trying to throw each other out of a treehouse. It's pretty wild that this is where we are right now. It is. It's petty politics at its worst, really. I mean, best and worst, really. But if you think of like, the State of the Union, that's an institution. And so I, I can't imagine just not having it. At the same point, I think disclosing where someone's going and canceling a trip on both sides. You just want to slap the wrist and say, shame on you. Now let's, let's move on. Let's go forward. Because if you're doing something like canceling the State of the Union, that is an institution. That is something the American public needs to know what's going on. We can't just say, now we're getting rid of all these other things because personalities don't agree. And who knows, perhaps we'll see the president deliver the State of the Union from the Oval Office, from somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to have to go to McDonald's. And as far as calling it a tradition, I guess it depends how, how long it has to happen for it to become a tradition. But for you know, well over 100 years. For a long time, it was, it was just delivered in writing. By, by yeah. a courier. We'll yeah. see what happens. All right, so there may not be a State of the Union address a week from Tuesday, but we did hear the State of the State 
this past week, Governor Holcomb's third State of the State address. We spoke earlier with Senate Minority Leader Tim Lannan. You heard that interview here in our first segment. Let's get some thoughts from our panel now. What, what were your thoughts on the governor's address, Tim? Overall, it was a, a solid speech uh, from the governor. Obviously, the, the biggest news was uh, his proposal to use part of the surplus to increase teachers' salaries. Uh, I, and I'll give him credit for that. It, it was a creative move and, and something that most people didn't expect. And it seemed from Senator Lannan's interview, for the most part, he was saying, yeah, he couldn't find a lot of points of contention with what the governor had to say. No, and it's funny, I got on the elevator with a Democratic lobbyist the next day uh, who said, well, you know, I said, what do you think of the state of the state? He said, well, pretty progressive. Heard a lot of things I like in there, including the bias crimes, mm -hmm. teacher pay. And I will say on that issue in particular, I think this is a really good solution to that issue because it actually attacks the underlying problem of pension debt, which is strangling not just Indiana, but a lot of states. And if you don't address that, you can never get to higher teacher pay. Still a lot of questions, though, whether the governor can move some Republicans over to his way of thinking on the bias crimes issue. Not everyone oh, stood and applauded. Well, as we talked before, on that part. There, there's a long time to go before the end of April. There are so many legal problems with the bill as drafted. Now, hopefully, a bunch of smart people will come together and figure that out. But I would suspect the governor will sign whatever the legislature sends him as long as it's some kind of an incremental progress in his mind. I don't think anybody's going to get exactly what they want. The question is, yeah, what kind of bill will he get? What was your response uh, to his to his speech and well, how it's been received? Yeah, I think overall it was well received and I can understand why there was something for everything. The one thing that I noticed, and I was glad there was an Indie Star article that pointed this out too, he wasn't as measured in terms of what his goals were as he has been in the past where he said, I want to increase jobs by this much. I want to bring in this many new opportunities. And I understand when you give yourself those goals and you fail to meet them, that's kind of fueling opposition for you know competition later on. But that's something I've really admired and appreciated from the administration. Otherwise, I thought it was a really good speech. And Tim, as you pointed out, kind of a surprise to hear him say we're going to dip into the surplus for many years now on a number of issues. The surplus has been a hands-off kind of thing at the state. It, it's been walled off, although I think if you're going to dip into it, teacher salaries is a, yeah. is a good reason. And it's going to pay down debt, pension debt. Um, so I, I think it's a, a reasonable use of of the surplus we have, which is what, what 1.8 billion, I believe. Uh, it's not gonna be gone overnight. Although the money can go very quickly, as Mike knows. When well, you know, and we gotta get up to this caveat for our viewers. The governor cannot force the school boards. There's right. 300 and We've some school boards, whatever right. it is around the state. And not only do you have the school boards that are independently elected, but nobody's talked about the teachers unions. They, under state law, they negotiate on behalf of the teachers. So. We're going to have to watch a lot of actions at the local level. Okay. All right, up next, we're going to hear from the Attorney General and from one of his accusers who's now fighting for change at the State House. Stick around. We'll be right back after this. One of Attorney General Curtis Hill's accusers is making her voice heard with a series of new proposals at the State House. Trevor Shirley has more. The four bills filed by State Representative Mara Candelaria Reardon each address a different issue stemming from the allegations she and three others have leveled against Attorney General Curtis Hill. Well, what we're trying to accomplish is um, providing safer workplaces for everybody in Indiana. Speaking with me today, she hopes the bills will prevent others from experiencing what she and the other accusers say they've had to go through regardless of where a person works. Well, this provides a mechanism by which there are consequences for that behavior. As of now, there's not much state lawmakers can do to remove an elected official from office if they've been accused of wrongdoing. Governor Eric Holcomb, along with other high-profile GOP lawmakers, have called on Hill to resign 
Hill has refused. It's been very difficult for um, the people that understand and believe and uh, saw what happened to see that there have been no consequences. Of the four bills introduced, House Bill 1573 would establish a path for lawmakers to remove elected officials accused of wrongdoing from office. House Bill 1581 would prevent elected officials from using tax money to pay for settlements or fund illegal defense. House Bill 1577 would expand which employers can be charged with workplace discrimination, and House Bill 1574 would create the crime of lewd touching without consent. Actually, I've not seen the bills yet, so until I've had a chance to take a look, I wouldn't have anything to say about it. Hill has repeatedly and vehemently denied any wrongdoing. This morning, he did say he'd review the proposals. We look at most of the bills out, so uh, we'll see when that comes up. Reporting at the State House, I'm Trevor Shirley. Okay, Trevor, thanks. Stick around. We'll be back with this week's Winners and Losers right after this. Now for this week's winners and losers. Laura, you're up first. My winner this week is Chief Justice Loretta Rush. She delivered the State of the Judiciary on Wednesday and talked about how justice should be available to all Hoosiers, not just those who can afford it. And I think it's a great message of Hoosier hospitality. Mike. Well, first, the governor. He named Dennis Weimer to be the new leader for the Veterans Affairs After Department. All the controversy. And, uh, you know, that guy's got a, quite a challenge in front of him. I applaud the governor. And uh, actually, the mayor of Kokomo, uh, Greg Goodnight, announced he's not running Won't again. Running, quite yeah. a leader in the, in the middle part of the state, former president of AIM, just, just quite a civic leader. Jennifer. I'm going to agree with Mike on the governor. I think he did a good job in the state of the state, not a lot of criticism. And my loser has to be those federal workers I mentioned earlier who are still showing up, not getting a paycheck, really starting to feel that burn, and no, uh, no, no end in sight. Tim, last word. Uh, my winner is the governor as well. My loser is President Trump and Speaker Pelosi. All right, thank you so much for being with us. Much more to come on our podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. And stay warm out there. We'll see you again next Sunday in Focus. All right, uh, hanging out on the podcast here, Laura Wilson, Mike Murphy, Jennifer Wagner, Tim Swearens. Really another wild week in Washington. As, as we were saying earlier, it's really hard to see how this is going to end anytime soon. It, it just got uglier this week. It, it was ugly, and, and you know, we kind of laugh about it because it is such a mess, but it's really just sad. And, and uh, I, I can't imagine, what Laura, what your students think about all this. I, I think they're befounded. When you say, like, 28 days, for them it's like, oh, my gosh, it's before Christmas. And, and many of them aren't directly influenced. They're not directly impacted yet. But to think, like, oh, if something just doesn't work, we say, well, we're just not going to keep the government open until we can figure out. I don't think it's a good model for anyone, certainly for college students trying to learn this system. Yeah, I mean, you forget it's before Christmas. Uh, Senator Braun, Congressman Baird, the other new elected officials have never served in D.C. <laughs> when we've yeah. not been under a shutdown, right? That's exactly That's right. right. Of course, I'm reminded of the, of the Mitch Daniels quote, you'll be, you'll be amazed at how much government you don't miss. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really true. That's why you said, or maybe one of the yeah. reasons why we haven't felt it that much in the Midwest. I feel sorry for all the federal workers who are, are struggling right now. But there's a lot of government that we really don't miss when it shuts down. Some essential things we need. Like TSA, that'd be a good thing to have. That I think we should privatize, privatize TSA in two seconds. Okay. Well, and we might have to in a yeah. few weeks, I suppose, right? Yeah. We, we don't yeah. know what's going to well, happen here. It's one of those things, too, that I mean, I'm a partisan, I'm a Democrat, but like, I'm equally disappointed in not necessarily, like you said on the show, like, I don't fault Speaker Pelosi for what she's doing with the State of the Union, but like, how this whole thing just cheapens the entire political process. Yeah. And no matter what side of the aisle you're on, this is what you see of your government. And you're like, never mind. I don't want anything to do with those crazy people. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I don't know that the republic is in danger if we don't have a State of the Union address, right? I mean, I, 
it, it's a lot of formality, a lot of speechifying, and, and I don't know it has a lot of substance most years. So I think, you know, I think the, the president ought to hand a letter to the vice president and you know, Vice President Pence gets on the horse and rides it over to, right. to Capitol Hill, <laughs> you know, just like it, they huh? used to do it, and, and I think we'd be fine. One off by land, one off by land, two off by sea. But right. Tim, he's the TV president. Can you imagine? Like, I think that's what could she was doing. Thing? Could, I, oh, because I'm a fan wow, of the institution. An <laughs> I, I, and I, you know, with the limit of characters, that'd be really, really difficult. I just, I, I like the formality. Be a lot of, of dot, dot, dots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh my gosh. One of 237. Right, long thread. Well, and frankly, the world watches that speech. I mean, we're sure not the only people. ones who tune in, right? Yeah, people right. tune in from all over the world. Well, and to that point, the world is watching now. Oh, definitely. And seeing what, what's happening with the American government, seeing what's happening with the various investigations in the news Friday, that there may be more trouble looming for President Trump. There's that, and, and, and you know, there's China out there that is uh, building power on um, many different levels, and at some point, you know, they're going to be a serious threat, not militarily maybe, but to our economy, yeah. to our influence in the world. And the more we argue and have nonsense among ourselves, it just helps them. What about Indiana lawmakers and the way they approach the situation right now? You have Senator Young and Senator Braun, two Republican senators now. Uh, some has been made this week about Senator Young. He's got a new position, NRSC. Could he be moving more uh, and more toward the president? He took a vote this week. He was one of uh, a number of Republicans voted to lift the san sanctions on the Russian oligarch. Not every Republican did, but he was among them. Um, how do Indiana lawmakers approach some of these controversies? Well, right now, they, I think they're in their camps, right? You've got the Democratic, uh, there's two, a, couple, a couple left. The two, two Democrats here are left Be in nice. the delegation are, you know, in the Democratic right. camp, and, and everybody else is in the Republican camp, and it looks like they're going to stay there. I think you need to separate the issues. The removing of the sanctions or the lessening of the sanctions on the oligarch were really following federal law. I mean, last year, they passed a law that laid out conditions for those sanctions to be uh, lessened, and the conditions were met. So I don't blame Senator Young for voting for that at all. If any member of the Indiana delegation has stood against Trump at any time, it's been it's been Todd Young. Um, and then you have you know it also you get to the point where how do you manage this guy? You can't you know these Republicans can't be against him all the time, right? So they have to pick their fights. And I think Todd has been pretty smart in picking. When he, dif when he differs from the president. You did have some in the House uh, voting uh, ag against lifting those sanctions, Susan Brooks, uh, Jim Banks among them. Um, l let's talk about uh, you know, where, where we're headed next. Hard to say, right? It's really hard to say. I, as we said earlier, I don't think there's an obvious compromise, because usually you'd say, well, let's just give one side a little bit of what they want, we'll give the other side a little bit of what they want, but you're not going to partially fund a wall or anything like that. Well, but, but, we, but that's the proposals for $5 billion, which will not complete the wall. And uh, we already have about 1,000 miles of... 653. 653, to be exact. I'm impressed. Uh, well, uh, miles of, of a border barrier of some type. Sometimes, sometimes it's a wall, sometimes it's a fence. So it's not as if we're starting from scratch. And it's not like... I mean, I think there's a lot of room to, to compromise on what a wall, quote-unquote wall, means, right? By the way, I know what 653 is because of the very well-done Gannett video that was put out by USA Today where they flew the entire 2,000-mile yes. border. Project, yeah. yes. It was very well done. Yes. Well, and a lot of people, uh, you know, probably on both sides, sort of stick to their viewpoints on this issue and perhaps don't realize some of the statistics you've pointed out about uh, the, the amount of wall that might exist now and 
also the amount of terrain that might never be well suited, suited. toward a wall. Right, and, and, and so I think there is, you know, there is a, a right now it's all focused on a wall. Um, and I think if I mean, we it's talk about down to its most basic, basic right. yes, yeah. but if we start it's to talk nuanced, about right. border security and and the fact that it's extremely dangerous for people to come across the border in many cases, and and none of us should want that. I mean, we can talk about how people enter the country, what kind of a country we should be in, in uh, welcoming refugees and asylum seekers. Um, you know, I, I think our heritage, our history, is to be as welcoming as possible. It's what we should strive for. But it's also really, really dangerous if you're crossing a desert, particularly with a family, and we shouldn't encourage people to do that. And no talk by the president or anybody in Congress that I can tell about the real problem, which is that more than half of all the illegal immigrants come here legally on a visa, right. and, and when it expires, they yeah, stay here because they like it. Well, how, would we be a better policy to address sure that? Because that would, would be a really cost, good talking point. It wouldn't cost $5 billion. Yeah, but you guys are talking like normal people who want to have a logical conversation <laughs> well, about the actual issue. Right, but I think a part of the reason why we're in this mess right now is because this is not a new issue by any means, right? Oh. I mean, I lived in South Florida in the 80s and 90s when immigration was a major issue there. Um, and depending on what country you came from, our government treated you very, very differently, sure. right? So if you were from Cuba and you were, for a period, if you were picked up by the Coast Guard or by a private citizen, you were welcome into the United States. If you were from Haiti and the same thing happened, you were immediately sent back. Uh, we've had these types of problems in our immigration policy for decades. We've not, you know, the people in charge did not address it, and now we've got this mess because of that. Now, and both are. parties have controlled all three branches of government at one That's time so or another yeah. in the last 15 to 20 years. Most recently, obviously, the Republicans, and neither party has done anything about it while they had the absolute ability to dictate the solution. Well, let's uh, bring it closer to home, talk about other stories making news uh, in Indiana and in Indianapolis that might have gotten lost in the shuffle with all the other news this week. We mentioned before the show in the mayoral race, uh, Jose Evans now uh, announcing he won't be running, uh, perhaps clearing more of a path for state I Senator guess. Jim Merritt. Um, obviously, I just learned about it today on Twitter yeah. like most of us did. But uh, with one, one guy down, it now leaves, I think, maybe three Republicans running at this point. And, uh, you know, time for more people to get in if they want to. I expect that Merritt will be the nominee, but I can't discount anybody yet. And, of course, as we record this, we don't know the exact impact of this uh, weekend snowstorm. But all of those issues pop up in a mayoral race, potholes, snow removal. These are the, uh, the very uh, essence of mayoral leadership, and those kinds of things could become an issue in a campaign. They, they, they certainly could. I mean, I think Joe Hogsett is has to be the favorite, heavy favorite to win in November. This is a Democratic city. He's an incumbent. He has more than $3 million in the bank, a lot working in his, in his favor. I would say he feels more vulnerable right now than he should be. Well, and I, it is interesting to me that, he, that Merritt keeps comparing himself to Ballard. And I've had, I, first of all, let me preempt all of that by saying, I think Joe Hogsett will be mayor for a second term. I don't think there's going to be any issues. He's got a huge war chest, he's doing a pretty good job, but I think he's got two potential issues. One will go away because the election's in November, and that is potholes and snow and all that, because it doesn't generally snow here in November. Right. The other one is crime, right. and I know that you guys at the Star are, you know, doing the, week, uh, the yeah. year-long look at that, and I remember back when Bart Peterson was riding high in his second term, and there was a lot of attention then paid on, you know, taxes and some uh, city county councilors who were maybe engaged in some not great business practices, and all of that crumbled pretty much overnight. 
So it's not impossible for Jim Merritt, but it's improbable. It is improbable, yes. I think that's the challenge for Hogsett because he's been in office, and that, that was one of the things he campaigned on, was crime and you know, the right. increasing Public homicide safety. rate. Yeah. And so when you say, but wait, it hasn't changed, and actually it's gotten worse and getting better. I mean, he has to be able to convince voters, and I realize an incumbent with a big war chest, but yeah. still convince voters <laughs> that somehow his policies are working and that he's still a better person for but the for most, for most voters, that homicide rate, uh, I don't want to sound insensitive, but is just a number in the newspaper or on TV. The fact is that, as Troy Riggs will tell you, 85% of the victims, the murder victims in this town, are convicted felons. 88% of the perpetrators are convicted felons. And Troy Riggs has said many times that if you're not in the drug business, like illegal drug business, and you're not a victim of domestic violence, this is still a pretty safe city. And so the average voter, no matter what part of town they live in, doesn't really feel it unless it's, it's the optics of it sometimes. See, we have the yeah. shooting right in the heart of downtown yeah. Indy this week, which right. was just sort of an isolated incident between two people in a car, but when it happens right downtown, right. there's just something about it that, that feels a little bit more significant. And when you yeah. have a high crime rate, and then you run the risk of, I mean, you're right, Mike, and it's, I mean, it is insensitive, but that is how people view this, if it's not happening to them or in their neighborhood. Sure. But then you have, let's say you have a, a, a crazy, you know, murder like we had with Hovey Street, or... Right. Um, I'm thinking back to the 90s, and I'm blanking on the name up in Carmel, the, um, the kids who got killed gang style, right? right. Like, those oh, yeah, are things yeah, yeah. that... Um, Menendez, maybe? No, no. No. Um, they were Hollywood. That's right. Anyway, um, so you have one of those that happens, and then everyone is laser-focused on it because it's not, quote-unquote, the norm. That's something that could be a potential risk. It, and and there, was a, there was a triple homicide late last year, a couple miles from where I live on the west side. And, you know, was I in danger? Was my family in danger? Were my neighbors in danger? No. But we all paid attention because three people were killed. You brought it close to right. it, Exactly. Right. And it, it turned out, you know, police made an arrest. They're saying it was a, somebody from Gary who came down for a drug deal. So is that going to, you know, is that a, a, a drastic public safety threat? No, but we all pay attention to that right. when it happens close to home. And perception is everything. I don't worry about personally being murdered because I'm not involved in that stuff, but I know my grandmother who lives in Columbus says, oh, Indianapolis is such a dangerous city. And it, it, it does give you that when you look at not, the Not involved in what stuff? Tell us more. One issue that, that it is visible and is causing change companies are moving out of downtown because of it is the panhandler problem we have. I mean, Anthem, you know, ending its lease on the circle and moving consolidating over on Virginia Avenue, there's there's no way that didn't have some some play in there. Well, I don't think it's the panhandlers yeah. as much as it is is the folks who are on the synthetic drugs that I mean, there's a real mm -hmm. big problem. Yes. I've a lot of friends who, you know, have friends in law enforcement and they talk about that all the time. It's, it, that is something I don't know if it's directly contributing, but I think needs to be brought under control because our downtown is the crown jewel of our city and people come here and that's what they're seeing. Yeah. Well, and you guys, to, to your point, I think Mike or Jennifer brought it up, you have a new newsletter out this year, the Indy Star. Called The Toll. Dealing, toll. Called yes. the, toll the Toll, dealing specifically with the issue of crime in Indianapolis. <laughs> Worth checking out and, and reading more about. Definitely, yes. Ryan Martin yeah. and James Briggs are leading that effort. All right. Guys, thank you so much for being here this week. Much more to come next Sunday in Focus. <laughs>